All right, so we're finishing up our series. Uh, we're finishing up Luke chapter 10. We're going through the whole book of Luke. It's going to take us a few years, so we're going to take a break starting next week, talking about something else. But we'll be, ba- we'll be back in Luke chapter 11 starting the Sunday after Easter, so you can look forward to that if you're into the whole, let's go through the whole Bible thing. All right, so today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10, verse 38 to the end of the chapter, and it's a very famous story. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to jump right in. We're going to look at the five verses that we're going to look at and then talk about how I got it wrong the first time I read it. So, (laughs) yeah, we have to talk about how how I'm wrong. Okay, so let's start. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. So Martha's like, come on over, Jesus. Okay, next verse. (laughs) She had a sister called Mary, not Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's a different Mary. Mary's a very common name back then who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Next verse. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And so she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Then he's, uh, next, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Okay, this is a famous story, and if you've been going to church for, I don't know, maybe at least two years, you've probably heard a sermon on this. Well, maybe not here, because I think this is the first time I'm talking about it. Maybe Lori talked about it. I'm not sure. Anyways, I'll tell you something about this verse, okay? Growing up, I heard a lot of sermons on on this section of the Bible, and the lesson that came with this passage was usually the same thing, and maybe you could guess it before I get there, okay, which is this, that there's, a, um, there's Martha who's working really hard in the kitchen, and there's Mary who's sitting at the, the feet of Jesus, and Martha's thing is, like, I'm working really hard to make sure I'm cooking up the storm. I want to make sure that everybody has food. I want to make sure the house is clean. Meanwhile, Mary's sitting here doing her own thing with Jesus, and then Jesus scolds Martha for working too hard, that you should have been sitting here with Mary because, you know, it's better to not be busy, and it's better to sit with Jesus. Like, have you guys heard that lesson before? Well, that's what I thought. So I'm like, when it came to this passage, I was going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I I could probably just preach the same thing. Well, if you know me, that's not me, right? So so I'm going to show you a quote, or I just showed it to you, but uh, from a guy named Dr. Joel Green. Now, Joel, let me tell you something about Joel Green. When I, go, when I went to seminary and when I talked to this, my professors about, hey, you know, who do you go to to get information about the book of Luke? Like, who is the expert on this thing, at least in the English language? Who, who understands Luke more than anybody else? Who's done more research on this than anybody else? Most professors would say, oh, Dr. Joel Green. He's like a legend in the Bible nerd community, and which I go Google about that. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's Joel Green. So, I know you guys are like, who? But I'm like, yes, that's a celebrity. So, I'm going to show you a quote about, uh, from him, from one of his books, about this passage. Take a look at this. Although, you have to read it like I'm really smart. It's like, although long interpreted as establishing the priority of the contemplated life over against the active one, he's like, for a long time people have preached on this about how it's about being contemplative, you know, being with Jesus versus being active and being busy. Like, people have said that's what the verse is about. The interest of this brief narrative unit lie elsewhere. This is his way of gently telling you, you wrong. If you think this verse that we just read right now is about you have to be more like Mary because she's the one that's more like wants to hang out with Jesus whereas the other one's working, he's like, uh-uh, that's not the point of this passage. 
to which I'm like, but that's what I've been taught. Like, that's, that's all the sermons I heard about this is about that. How many of you guys know where I'm standing right now? Like, that you guys know what I'm talking about. That when he came to this passage, it was all of it, always about spend time with Jesus rather than working really hard. If you don't work, then you don't eat. So that's a problem, you know. But, okay, so in order to understand and unpack what this passage is about, it's actually very controversial, which I like about Jesus. Okay, we're going to have to look at two things two types of context. And we're going to be looking at these two things right here. We're going to be looking at biblical context and cultural context. Cultural context is how did the people live in the day that, that you know, what was the norm? What, what did people think and understand the world to be at the time that the story was written? So we have to look at that. We're going to look at that second, but first we're going to look at something called biblical context. Biblical context is from Genesis to Revelation, right? There's a story that's being told, and, and in that big story, this big picture, how does this contribute to the story? So in order for us to understand the biblical context, you have to know both biblical and cultural context, we have to go back to my favorite book in the Bible, obviously it's Genesis. So I'm going to give you a quick overview of what's happening in the Bible, and we're not going to go through the whole Bible, don't worry, we're just going to look at just a few verses. First I want to take a look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2. This is what we like to call paradise on earth. God created the world, okay, and he created the world with the way the things are, trees, fish, you know, all that kind of stuff. And he looked at it and he said it was good. He looked at everything and said, this is exactly how I want it to be. Now, at this point, if you're new to church or new to Christianity or new to the Bible, I want to give you some terms here. There's this term, this, this phrase called kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. A kingdom is basically whatever you have complete control over. So we all have kingdoms. If you got to choose what you wore today, because some of you, some people choose for you, right? Like, you can't wear that, you have to wear this, right? If you chose what you wore today, right, and you chose to get up at the time that you wanted to, and you chose to drive here in the car that you wanted to, your, you know, or bike or whatever you do, you know, and you ate whatever you wanted to eat, that's your kingdom. You have complete control over the certain things in your life, that's your kingdom, okay? If somebody else asserts their dominance over you, that's no longer your kingdom. That's that person's kingdom. That's, so... We don't use for kingdoms anymore, but in, whenever you hear the word kingdom in the Bible, that's what it's talking about. God has a kingdom. In the world that God created, he had complete control over it. And in that world, he created humanity. And he gave them free will. But with free will comes the chance that they might create their own kingdom. So in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God, having complete control, created humanity. And humanity had complete freedom to do whatever they wanted. And so they started doing what they wanted to do. Now, this is what happened. The kingdom that humanity created in Genesis 1 and 2 was exactly the same as the kingdom that God wanted, meaning there was an overlap of these two circles. Whatever God wanted was exactly what humanity wanted. And so everything was A-OK. Everything's fine, you know, until we get to Genesis chapter 3. This is paradise lost. Somewhere along the line, humanity said, you know, my goal and God's goal, they don't match anymore. You know, instead, you know, like in God's perfect world where love reigns, he would say, you know, we need to be generous with each other. We need to be, we have to let go of the things that we have so that everybody else can have, you know, everybody has no need because everybody's so generous with each other. But all of a sudden, humanity started saying, you know what, but what I notice is there's more security when I hold on to the stuff that I have, so I'm not going to be generous anymore. Or maybe it's, it's selfishness. Like, I notice that when I focus on myself and not other people, I feel good. And uh, I want to make sure that life is about me and not somebody else. And God's like, but in my kingdom, in the world where everything that I wish to happen happens, everybody, everybody's selfless. But humanity's like, no, I don't know. I, I kind of care about myself more than other people now, right? Or maybe it's protection. I have all this strength, 
and God, in God's kingdom, you use your strength to protect the people that you love. But all of a sudden, people started using their strength to dominate over other people so that they could expand their kingdom. So all of a sudden, this heaven on earth, this paradise on earth, this God's kingdom here on earth, started to break apart, started to fall apart because humanity and God's kingdom started to separate. That's Genesis chapter 3. And for the rest of the Old Testament, people were trying really, really hard to, like, well, we want to get back to God's kingdom, but we don't know how. And they're trying to do everything right. They're like, at one point, a group of people called the Israelites, they created their own nation called Israel, and they're like, okay, maybe if you have a king that, that's godly, maybe he could take this whole nation back to, to paradise, to bring us back into God's kingdom, into God's favor. And every single time, they fail, 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 right? Now, we're going to skip the rest of the Bible and jump to four books, which is this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the four biographies of Jesus. In these four books, we call that reclaiming paradise. Jesus, who is God in human form, God in a bod, <clears throat> he shows up on the scene, and he starts to reclaim paradise. He walks around, and because he's, he he, he's a human body, he, he's limited to where he could go. He can only be in one place at one time. He goes to certain places, and he sees somebody who's sick. And he says, in God's kingdom, there's nobody who's sick, so he heals them. He goes to a person who is an outcast of society, and he says, in God's kingdom, there are no outcasts, so I'm going to befriend this person, right? When he goes to a certain place and sees something that's out of whack, and it's like, that does not reflect the kingdom of God, he fixes it on the spot. When he sees powers that, that are not supposed to be in power because they're, they're taking advantage of the weak, he goes and says, and prophesies to them and says, you know, this is not going to last forever. This kingdom is eventually going to fall down, and one day my kingdom is going to be here on earth. As a matter of fact, a little bit of it, of it is already on this earth because I am here. You know, so, so in the Bible, and especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, especially Luke, which we're looking at, you'll find example after example, example, Jesus saying, the kingdom is here, but is yet to come. He's basically saying, my kingdom is starting to spread already, so it's already here, but it's not fully realized yet. All right, are you guys tracking so far? All right, okay. That is the biblical context. When the story of Mary and Martha takes place, this is what's in the minds of people. People who have, who have, these Jews who have read the Bible all their lives, heard the Bible all their lives, this is what they understand is we're waiting for the kingdom of God to come here on earth so that the people who are oppressed are finally going to have a chance to live a normal life. Okay, that's the, that's the biblical context. Next, we're going to look at <coughs> cultural context. Okay, so these are some of the things you need to know. Okay, so in this story, we have Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha are both, both obviously women, right? How did women in those days receive honor and worth? Well, we're going to look at Dr. Mark Strauss. There's a lot of scholars today I'm going to look at. This is what he said. Jewish society placed a high value in hospitality, and a woman's honor and reputation depended on her ability to manage her household well. A woman's highest calling was service. So 2,000 years ago, on the other side of the globe, the role of the woman, so I'm not saying this is how we ought to be today. This is just how it was. It's not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying this is how it was back then. Their reputation, their worth, their everything was dependent on how well you took care of the household how good your meals were that you, you cooked for your family, how clean the house was, right? Th these are some of the things that people looked at. So if a really important person was coming into town and came into your house, your house could be cleaned 364 days out of the year, but that one day that's messy, if that guy comes in and sees the house messy, immediately your reputation is going to be dependent on that one day 
of how your house looks like on the day that that guy came over. Okay, so that's a very important piece of information that you need to know because a woman's worth was based on how important people perceived your house and how their households was run. Okay, so are we okay with that? I mean, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying, are you, do you understand? Are you tracking? Okay. Okay, so with that information, and I'll give you more information as we go along, we're going to look at the verses again. Here we go. Verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. So who is the one in this story that's inviting Jesus over? Martha. Why would Martha invite Jesus over to her home? Because she is saying, usually a woman does not invite an important person to their home. Why? Because that just opens her up to being, you know, like ranked in society, right? But at this point, Martha was so proud of the way that she keeps her home. She's like, here's an important person, Jesus. He's coming into this town. Hey, Jesus, you want to come over and take a look at how awesome and clean and awesome, you know, like how, how awesome this house is? You know, like I've worked so hard to clean this house. I want you to come over right now because right now the house is clean, right? And I just started, there's something baking in the oven right now, and I want to show it off to you because once, I, once you come over and take a look at my house and taste my food, you're going to be so impressed. And, I, you know, and then the, the rumors are going to go out into the town. It's like, Martha, you know, she's like an awesome woman, you know, like, right? So, so that's the whole thing that's going on here. Martha is trying to impress Jesus. Okay, next verse. She had a sister called Mary who, and this is important, sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Okay, <clears throat> right now, Martha is in the kitchen doing her thing. Meanwhile, Mary is in the common room, the public room, meaning that's where guests come in, sitting at the foot of Jesus as Jesus is teaching. Okay, now what's, what's weird with this? Now this is the part that probably, you probably, probably didn't know. Okay, this is a quote from N.T. Wright. He's a New Testament scholar. He's one of the leading scholars. This is what he said. The real problem between Martha and Mary wasn't the workload that Martha had in the kitchen. The real problem was that Mary was behaving as if she were a man, man. Mary is doing something that represents something that only a dude (laughs) would do. Well, what's that? Well, okay, it turns out in an ancient home in Israel, the house was divided into some quarters, like sections, okay? And certain sections were only for men, some sections were only for women, and only some sections were, were, were allowed for both, okay? So I'm going to kind of break it down for you guys here. This is what it looks like. So men's rooms is the public room, meaning if you have guests over, that's where men are allowed to be. But when it comes to women, they're allowed in the kitchen and then the hidden rooms. Hidden rooms are rooms that's like... Um, if a guest comes over and you say, oh, don't, you, you could go to the bathroom, you go here, you go here, you go here, but do not go into that room. The room that's hidden from public, that is where the women usually had to be. So kitchen or, public, uh, or the private hidden room, okay? In the joint areas were places like outside, like the front of the house, back of the house, the children's room so that both parents could be there to take care of the kids, and the bedroom where whatever happens in Married bedrooms happen. Okay, so these are the joint areas. Okay, so you could kind of see right here already that Mary is in a place, if Jesus is a guest and she's, he's there, if Mary is also there, that's a big no-no. That's where only men are allowed to be. So in this story so far, we have Martha doing what she's supposed to be doing, which is being in the kitchen, right? And then Mary is hanging out with the guys, which is not cool. This is a big red flag, but here, here's the thing. That red flag is about to get bigger, okay? Because she's not just hanging out in the room where there are men. It's what she's doing in that room. 
if you remember the verse, it said that he, she was sitting at the foot of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus, right? At the feet of this rabbi named Jesus. Take a look at this quote from N.T. Wright. He says this, to sit at the feet of a rabbi was a decidedly male role. It's only what a guy was supposed to do. This was what you did if you wanted to be a rabbi yourself. There is no thought here of learning for learning's sake. So it's not like, hey, I just want to learn what Jesus has to teach. When you sit at the foot of, if you want to hear what the rabbi is teaching, you can stand afar with your arms crossed in the back just listening, right? Mary decided to walk up to Jesus and sit right in front of him, which was a posture of what a disciple did. It's a posture of somebody who wants to become like the rabbi. In other words, she wanted to be a rabbi. Mary has quietly taken her place as a would-be preacher of the kingdom of God, which is unheard of. Her aspiration was she wanted to be the first female rabbi. Or, in our terms, it would be Mary wanted to be the first Christian preacher. Wow. That was not allowed for women back then. What is Mary trying to do here, and what is Jesus trying to teach us here? In other words, here's a summary of what we talked so far. Mary felt called to fulfill a role that was socially unacceptable to women. I mean, this is like, what? I never saw that before, right? This is why Joel Green earlier said, if you think this verse is about, hey, you should just sit with Jesus well, you know, and don't, let, don't do any hard work, he's like, if that's the whole point of this passage, then you missed the point completely. So, and we don't have time to get into this too deep, okay? But there's other text talks that talks about Mary. And in these texts, there's an implication there that this wasn't the case all the time. That Mary, when she first started following Jesus, that was not her calling. But her calling was to get closer and closer to Jesus. And as she was getting closer and closer to Jesus, she found that her calling was to do this. In other words, next slide. The closer Mary got to Jesus, the more walls she had to overcome. So here's the thing. Mary, there's Jesus. Mary is trying to follow Jesus in the life that she is called to live. And as she's walking through this Christian journey, as she's walking through her faith, she realizes there's walls. Like, I feel called to teach the things that Jesus is teaching to my peers. But then there's this wall that says women can't be teachers. Women can't be disciples. Women can't be, do all these things. And so she's like, well, I need to tear down this wall. I got to kick it down. So she kicks it down, and now she's sitting at the foot of Jesus. And then she sees another wall, and she kicks it down. And so she's overcoming social barriers, these norms in society that Jesus looked at and says, clearly, this is not a part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will allow both genders to come and sit at my feet. And so Mary, in this story, had to overcome social barriers not for the sake of overcoming them, just because she's like, that's not right. She overcame it because it, it got in the way of her following Jesus. So that's Mary's story. But then there's another character in the story. Her name is Martha. And so the story switches over to her, and this is her verse right here. <clears throat> but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. The phrase right there, distracted by all the preparations, originally in the Greek, it literally means distracted by, by the much services. She was doing too much. She was distracted because she was busy doing so many things. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, in saying these things to Jesus, Martha is breaking some social norms. Number one, it says that Martha is the one that went to Jesus, meaning she's now in the men's room. That sounds like a bathroom. Men's common area. The public room, okay? That sounds kind of the same. Okay, but you know that room, okay? So she's breaking that norm at this point, right? And as she goes in there, what does she say? She looks at the guest of honor 
and she accuses him of not caring, which is a big no-no, right? And then after that, he gives, she gives the guest of honor some instructions of what he needs to do, which is another big social no-no back then. So both Mary and Martha are both breaking social norms, but for some reason, Jesus says, good job to Mary and to Martha. He doesn't, he doesn't, he, he doesn't have anything nice to say to her. <coughs> Why? Well, I don't know if you picked up on this already, but this is what's happening here. Martha is fishing for compliments from Jesus through her services. Why did Martha invite Jesus over? Well, it's because he wanted to impress him, right? He's like, Jesus, come over and take a look at how clean the house is. Look how awesome the bread that just baked for you, right? She's trying to get this, good job, Martha. I'm going to go tell the next town that I visit. Like, you know the town I just came from? This lady, Martha, she's awesome. Like, the, her house was so clean. Like, I, I'm just waiting for Jesus to say something good about me, something that will validate the emptiness in my heart. Like, I'm waiting for Martha to do something. Uh, I'm, waiting for, like, I'm waiting for Jesus to say something about something that I did that will make him say, like, you have worth. But if you look at the deeper levels, if you peel away all the layers of what Martha's trying to do, at the core, what she's really doing is this. Ultimately, Martha was concerned about herself. She invited Jesus over. Why? Because she cared about herself. She got angry at Martha, Mary sitting at the foot of Jesus. In, in, in the verse, it says that she's like, Jesus, tell her to come and help me in the kitchen. Is it really because she needed help with the kitchen? No, it's because she's like, I want you to pay attention to me, Jesus. I need some validation from you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, wait a minute, you invited me over to your house because you were insecure? You invited me to your house and you're doing all this for me because you want something from me? I thought I was a guest. I thought you came here so that, uh, you invited me here so that you could serve me, not, not so that you could get something out of me. And so Jesus responds, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. You're worried about way too many things here. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. He says, you're, you're thinking about too many things that are really adding up to nothing. You're wasting your time worrying about all these worldly things. You only have to worry about one thing. There's only one thing that you need to put your mind on. Well, well Jesus, I'm listening. What is that one thing I need to focus on? Well, it's interesting because this is what he says. He says, Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. He says, whatever Mary decided to focus on, right, this one thing that Mary said, like, I don't care what the social norms are. This is the thing that I'm going to focus on. We sold tunnel vision. This is the only thing we care about, right? He's like, Mary focused on this one thing, and she focused on the right thing. That one thing you're supposed to focus on, Mary got it right. And Martha's like, just tell me what it is. What is that one thing? And Jesus is like, Mary got it right. It's like, yeah, I, okay, she got it right, but I still don't know what it is. What is that one thing? What is that one thing that you want me to focus on that Mary got right that I got wrong? And the thing is, the story ends right here, <laughs> okay? So he doesn't explicitly tell the reader, but the reader who Luke is assuming that you read everything from Genesis up to this point, it's almost implicit. You, you, should, you should know what the answer is. What is that one thing that you should be telling vision about that Mary got right, that, that Martha got wrong? And the answer and I'm going to give you the answer, okay, is this. Heaven on earth. Heaven on earth. There's a world that God created in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, right, that was lost because humanity thought we knew better than God. And so we started doing the things that we thought were right, which ended up being wrong. And since Jesus came on earth, he's been trying to set the wrongs to right. And wherever he saw there were 
wrongs, he would try to fix it. Every once in a while, he'll just sit back and watch people try to fix it. And when he got it right, he would say, good job. When people got it wrong, he's like, oh, you're kind of off. I'll give you a few more tries until you get it right. You didn't get it right. Okay, let me just tell you how you're supposed to do it. In this story, Jesus looks at Mary and Martha, and he says to Martha, Mary got it right. Mary saw an injustice in this world. Mary looked around and said, I know women are supposed to be disciples, but there's something inside of me. Like, if you created me a certain way, my heart leaps for joy when I think that one day I could teach the things you're teaching me, Jesus, that one day I could teach it to my friends. I have to sit here at the foot of Jesus. And Jesus looked at that and said, in a world where God's kingdom reigns, that is exactly how you should be living your life. There's no only men could do this, only women could do this. In the kingdom of God, both genders are equal. You are both able to do what you're called to do. You see, because a heaven on earth, a world where, you know, God's reign is, is actually happening, he says, where, where the world is supposed to be the way that God created it, there are no outsiders, right? In a world, an ideal world, the world, the world that God originally created, every gender gets equal treatment. In a world where God created the world to be the way it's supposed to be, love reigns. There's no hatred towards people. There's forgiveness. And most importantly, in a world that's perfect, in a world where God's kingdom reigns, in that world, everybody would have a relationship with Jesus. Everybody would know who God is, and God would know everybody. And Mary, by sitting at the foot of Jesus, taking on the posture of a disciple, Jesus looks at that and he applauds and says, look, Mary got it right. Because in the kingdom of God, everybody would be sitting at the foot of Jesus, regardless of your gender. Meanwhile, Martha, you're over here thinking of ways to impress me. Why? Because you're trying to get something from me. Mary's actions were a step forward towards the world that God originally intended. Mary, what you did today, you paved the way for something huge. And I don't even know if you know that you did that. But what you did today is going to pave the way for women for generations to come. Now, I'm not saying the church got it right since then. Like, I, I, there's a lot of stories in the church, even today, where women aren't allowed to preach. And in this church, we, allow women, we, we, we want women to preach. And, you know, but we want equal treatment because... Un, you know, in God's kingdom, we believe that God loves both equally and God's gifts, God has gifted both sides equally. Mary got it right. Martha missed the mark. So the question is this. How did Mary get it right? How did she know that this was the right thing to do? Because if this is not what Jesus wanted, what Mary did would have been really offensive to him. But somehow Mary knew that this is what she had to do. She had to go and sit at the foot of Jesus and that that would please him. How did she know that? Well, the answer is this. Through her pursuit of Jesus, Mary stumbled upon heaven on earth. It wasn't that she was like, this looks like heaven on earth, I'm going to do that. It's in her journey of growing closer and closer to Jesus, she was like, oh my gosh, I just did something that looks just like the heaven on earth. This is great. Like She stumbled upon it. Heaven on earth doesn't come intentionally. Heaven on earth happens when you have that tight relationship with God. When you're focused on Jesus, that's when things happen. Martha, on their hand, she was focused on herself. How can I get validation from this? How can I get something from Jesus? And, for, and by doing that, 
She missed the mark. Now this is really interesting. The application of this is really interesting. Okay, and so I'm gonna start with a question and I'm gonna close with, with some thoughts that I'm gonna throw out you guys. The question is this. Is your pursuit of Jesus for yourself or for the world? You know, a lot of us, when we said yes to Jesus, when he said, I want to be a Christian, a lot of us said that because somebody presented Jesus to you as this. Hey, if you, if you accept Jesus into your life, after you die, you're going to have fire insurance. You don't have to worry about hell anymore. Now, is that true? Sure, that's true. Okay, but if you read through the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will never find Jesus saying, hey, you want to avoid hell? Come follow me. You'll never hear him saying that. Although that's what we do now as a church. You know, a lot of churches in America is like, hey, if you want fire insurance, come follow Jesus. And, and in other words, it's if you follow Jesus, there's something in it for you. Or maybe it was t- spent a different way. Maybe somebody said, if you follow Jesus, you'll have joy everlasting. Where do we see that in Jesus' teachings? Where do we see that in Paul's teachings? We do see it as a byproduct of following Jesus. Like, like when his disciples get tortured for following Jesus, they still walk home praising Jesus, right? Like, we see that as a byproduct, but that was never the invitation. The invitation for following Jesus, and this is going to rub some of you guys the wrong way because this is how you're brought up in the church, right? The, the motivation that people have for following Jesus is that they knew that by following him, becoming his disciples, we can make an impact in the world that could bring heaven on earth. That it wasn't, the pursuit of Jesus was not for ourselves, it was for the world. And I think for a lot of us, when we think about the categories of Christianity, a lot of us say, yes, I don't want to go to hell, so yes, I want to say yes to you, Jesus, I'm a Christian starting today, boom, done, right? And, and, and the frustration of pastors is, I have a whole congregation of people who said yes to Jesus because they don't want to go to hell, but now that they got their fire insurance, they don't really do anything. There's this kind of like, I got fire insurance, so I'm just going to go live my life the way I want. And Jesus is like, that's not why I died on the cross for you guys. This, this is not the reason why this thing called Christianity exists. This thing called Christianity exists not because of this category over here, although it is a byproduct of following Jesus. The reason why I want to follow Jesus is in a different category. is so that we can be for the world. So that his kingdom could rest here on earth wherever we go. If you have said yes to Jesus you have taken one step in the direction of heaven on earth. You have already said, yes, Jesus, I want to be in relationship with you, <laughs> right? And, 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 as, and as I start pursuing you, I'm going to come across walls that, that I'm going to come across that I feel like I have to move out of the way. And sometimes that wall is called racism. You're like, I started following Jesus, and, and because I follow Jesus, I just feel like I need to befriend my neighbors, and it just turns out my neighbors are of a different race. So this thing called racism, it's just in the way I'm going to get out of the way. Or... Or maybe it's greed. And like, you know, in following Jesus, I feel like if he gave his life for me, I need to give something back to the world. And so you're like, well, there's a thing called greed. I'll just get it out of this wall right here. Just get it out of the way so that I can be more generous. These acts of heaven on earth are things that you stumble upon in your pursuit of following Jesus. And that's what Mary got right. Martha, on the other hand, was following Jesus for selfish reasons. She wanted something from Jesus. And ultimately, she got mad at Mary because she got it right and she got it wrong. So I'll ask you again, in your pursuit of Jesus, is it for yourself or is it for the world? 
because I would hate for our church to be a group of people who are stuck in this idea of, I got fire insurance, so I'm just going to lay back and do nothing. I'd much rather have us in a category that says, I'm going to follow Jesus as much as I can, and any wall that I come across in that process, I'm just going to push aside. Now, I want to make something clear about this passage, and I'm going to close after that. The act that Mary did here was not a protest against the system back then. It's not like she said, she, it's not like she sat at the foot of Jesus and afterwards she went outside with a sign outside that says, you know, women disciples, women disciples, down with the system. Like, she's not doing that. She's not trying to convince other women to do the same thing as she's doing. For her, she says, for me and for myself and maybe my household, I choose to live this way. It's not her way of trying to take her values and push it on down someone's throat. She's not trying to do that. I just don't want anybody in this church to go out there with a sign that says, you know, down with this, down with that. <laughs> you know, this is for you and your walk and any wall that you come across in that walk to push it aside because there are no walls for disciples. For disciples, there are no boundaries. We follow Jesus with whatever it takes. Amen.